interested? You know, is it America? Is it Russia? Is it Turkey? Is it Iran? Is it Israel? Great Britain? France? I mean, the list just goes on and on in our news this week, right? And so I, I'm sorry, but I would say this to you. It's, it's confusing. And sometimes you start to feel like when you look at the news and you look at what's going on in the world, I don't know what's up and I don't know what's down. You ever feel like that? And um, I, I'm glad that you can identify that. And, and I just think this, as we, as we look at our world today, God is seeking to get the attention of the nations. That Jesus wants the lamps, I would say, the lamps of his saints trimmed and burning, prepared and ready for his return. And, you know, the man or woman who, who flicks on the TV in the evening to watch, you know, CNN or CBC or Fox or CTV or ABC, whatever your preference is. For me, it's the iPhone. <laughs> I go to the news section on my iPhone and then figure it out, find my way through there. But wherever, wherever it is you source the latest news, sometimes it's so you, you, you look at these things, you read these things, you see what's going on in the world, and you say, you know, Lord, do you see how the nations are treating one another? God, do you see what's going on in the world? And like, what, what are you doing? And as followers of Jesus, you know, what we always need to remember is the words of Jesus to his disciples. Matthew 24, verse 7, and speaking to them of the last days, he said this, that nation will rise up against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places, all these are but the beginning of birth pains. And yet the scripture tells us, God has told us, Psalm 96 verse 3, that we are to declare his glory amongst the nations. That we are to declare his marvelous works to all people. That's our commission as followers of Jesus, to proclaim the good news of Jesus to the nations. And the Lord said through the prophet Ezekiel that all the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord. He, says, he said, they will all know that I am Yahweh, that I am Jehovah God. You know, when Jesus spoke of the signs at the close of the end of the age, he said the gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed to all nations and then to the whole world as a testimony to the nations and then the end will come, Matthew 24, 14. You know, last Sunday night, I was just so impressed as I flicked on the TV and I watched the vigil for the Humboldt Broncos. Did, did you guys watch that? How many of you watched that? If you haven't watched it, I would really encourage you to go look up uh, the message by Pastor Sean Brando of uh, Humboldt Bible Church. He was the chaplain for the Broncos. And uh, I mean, literally, I was reduced to tears as I listened to that man in his grief and in his pain and his love for those young men, for that team that he was serving, as he faithfully proclaimed the gospel of Jesus Christ across the airwaves of our country, like broadcast live by the CBC. I joked, I said, man, I don't think, I said to my wife, I don't think Billy Graham could have done a better job. I mean, that guy preached Jesus. And it, was, it wasn't just to Canada, it was broadcast all, all around the world. And, and I was like, proud of that small town Saskatchewan pastor with a broken heart as he shared the reality of Jesus Christ. The gospel proclaimed the nations. Isaiah said this. He said the nations are but a drop from a bucket and are accounted as dust 
on the scales. To whom will you liken God? What likeness compares to him? He says, do you not know and do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth that it is he who sits enthroned above the circle of the earth? Who brings princes to nothing and the rulers of the earth is emptiness. When he blows on them, they wither and the wind carries them off as chaff. That's what Isaiah said about the nations. And we need to be reminded this morning, I guess just sensing this, that that the nations belong to the Lord. You know, Solomon said this, that the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord, and he turns it wherever he will, Proverbs 21.1. And so look with me to Amos uh, chapter 1, verse 3 to 5. We're going to look at three different passages this morning, Old Testament prophets, and what they tell us about Damascus, and it's significant for our day to day. So let's check it out. Amos chapter 1, verse 3 to 5, it says this. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Damascus, and for four, I will not revoke the punishment, because they have threshed Gilead with threshing sledges of iron. So I will send a fire upon the house of Hazel, and it shall devour the strongholds of Ben-Hadad, I will break the gate bar of Damascus and cut off the inhabitants from the valley of Avon and him who holds the scepter of Beth, from Beth Eden and the, and the people of Syria shall go into exile to Kerr, says the Lord. And we know this, Damascus is uh, the capital of Syria and Amos uses this phrase as he begins to prophesy about Damascus. He says this, for three transgressions, of Damascus and for four, I will not revoke the punishment, says the Lord. Now, that does not mean that there were just three or four sins. It's a Jewish idiom that's used here that Amos is using. And it's an expression that says, because they go on, because they continue in sinning, Amos prophesied that God would judge Syria and it would be because of their cruelty to his people Israel. He says they've thrashed Gilead. With threshing sledges of iron. That's, that is, Gilead is the region of the Galilee. That's that land. Naturally, you know, over the millennia, as Syria and Israel have had war at different times, and the kings of Damascus would come and attack Israel. You can read about it many, many times in the Old Testament. They would come uh, through the region of Bashan, which is the Golan Heights, and they would come and they would attack Gilead, Galilee. The first region where they would get into that Jordan Valley. And actually, you know, we, we see the history, just modern recent history, that until 1973, the Syrian army was constantly shelling the communities of the Galilee. Then the Six-Day War happened, and some of you know the history of that. Some of you may not know the history of the Six-Day War. But in 1973, Israel miraculously defeated the Syrian army. The Syrian army had 1,260 tanks. And Israel scraped together a hundred. 1260 to a hundred. And the Israelis defeated them. And it was like this miraculous battle where they gained control of the Golan Heights. And so Amos, as he speaks here, speaks of this Damascus king, Hazel. He says, uh, and, and Hazel was the king that, that Elisha anointed. Let me remind you of this. There was a time in Elisha's ministry where the Lord said, I want to send you 
uh, to Damascus and you are to anoint Hazel, the next king of Israel. Hazel was just a servant in the king's, in the king's palace and, and Elisha went and anointed him and the next day Hazel took the pillow and he smothered the king and he took over power of the throne of Damascus. And when Elisha was anointing him, the scripture tells us that Elisha began to weep and Hazel asked him why he was weeping and Elisha said, because I know how many mother's wombs you will rip open in Israel and the lives that you will take. And so Amos prophesied this, okay? Just if we were to look at just quickly at this prophet to see what he prophesies is this, is that God would judge Damascus. Now it's interesting, Bible prophecy to me often has like dual fulfillments or double fulfillments. There's times in the past where we can see that God has brought judgment against the city of Damascus. But let's just think about this week. <laughs> you know, and what a week it's been, right? If you've been watching the news, if you guys have been watching the news at all, I'm like fascinated by this stuff. First there was, you know, the reported chemical attack of Assad on his own people, right? You know, we see in our picture, in our news, of little babies and little children and, and women that were, you know, that their lives were taken or deeply injured by this chemical attack. Then the news told us that someone bombed an Iranian military base in, in Syria and Iran and Russia claimed that the Israelis did it. And Israel, you know, could not confirm nor deny their involvement. I, yeah, yeah, I think that's funny. But, you know, they've consistently said this, the Israeli government, that they would not allow Iran to gain a foothold in Syria. And so we know what that means. Who did the work? I would say Israel did it. Then Friday night, you know, there was the coalition attack from France and U the UK and America. You know, President Trump was tweeting away and he's a machine, that guy. And, you know, he ordered the attack and the coalition. They all came together, the nations, and they did significant damage to the Syrian chemical uh, weapons program. And they hit three primary targets, they're, they're telling us. Yesterday, the Times of Israel reported, you may not have heard this in the news because it was kind of quietly going on underneath all that had happened with the coalition that, again, it was reported that there was another large explosion at an Iranian military base in Syria. And again, there was confusion about who carried out the attack, uh, no one really being clear on whether it happened from the air or wherever it happened, and no one confirming nor denying their participation in Israel. So, it I mean, it seems to point to Israel again. And you know, I think about these things and I think about what's going on in the world and I just would ask this question, how did we arrive here? How did we get here? How is all of this happening going on in, Samaria, in, in Syria? You know, Damascus is the oldest continually inhabited city in the history of the world. Did you know that? That even though Damascus has bowed its knee to many empires over the millennia, for the last 5,000 years, it has been a city that has been inhabited without interruption and without being desolated beyond the ability of its people to live there. You know, there was the Egyptians, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Medo-Persians, Alexander the Great, and all the empires, the Greek empires that followed him, the Roman Empire, 
Everyone in between and before and after and yet the city of Damascus has remained continually inhabited for 5,000 years. In the history of the world, it's, it is the, considered the oldest continually inhabited city. Never been destroyed. In 2010, the Middle East and, and uh, North Africa began to undergo a radical change in what you know, we've, we've been calling over the last number of years the Arab Spring. And it started in Tunisia and it sprung up in Libya, in Egypt. When we went to Egypt uh, just a couple years ago on a tour, it was like there were no tourists there, man. We went to the Great Pyramids and it was like we were there by ourselves practically because people were staying away. Tourists were staying away. There was Yemen and Bahrain and many more Muslim nations, Morocco, Iraq, Algeria, Lebanon, Jordan, Kuwait, Oman, Sudan. The Arab Spring was this wave of protests and uprisings against governments and regimes and dynasties that had controlled those nations. And as governments toppled, power vacuums ensued. And Syria itself was under the control of Bashar al-Assad, not immune to what was going on in the Middle East and the Arab Spring resulted in Syria to become an all-out civil war as anti-government rebels sought to cast off the stranglehold of Assad. Now, I, I just think, as I think about it, I think, you know, all, all you have to do is remember Libya. Remember Colonel Gaddafi? That great character. <laughs> Not a great man, but a great character. And we realize that, that I mean, you hear about Libya and what happened with Gaddafi and, and you start to recognize that some of the Arab Spring, that not all of it was organically grown, was it? That there was, there was foreign governments involved influencing what was going on, intervention, helping with the coups that were happening. And as much as we like, you know, might like to think that it's, that it's you know, how wonderful our Western governs, governments are, we kind of have to wonder what their role was when there's billions of dollars of oil at stake, right? No, exactly. And so, you know, when it comes to foreign intervention, the Arab Spring that took place in Syria and the civil war that has ensued, to me, takes the cake. It takes the cake. The Lord has used this, this civil war to draw many nations into the Middle East. You know, for the first time in all of the history of the world, all of the nations that are mentioned in Ezekiel chapter 38 that will participate in the war of Gog and Magog are present in Syria today. In the last six months, just since Christmas. And so when we talk about the civil war in Syria, I just want to give you a little bit of background as we, as we dive into some of this text. There, there are four primary groups that are involved in this Civil war, and I'm going to share them with you this morning. The first is this, Bashar al-Assad's Syrian Arab Republic. They continue to hold about maybe three-fifths of the country. And in Assad's coalition, there's some big players. You've heard about them in the news all week. There's Putin and the Russians. There's the Iranians. They're backing his leadership uh, with all of their crazy leadership. Also mixed in with him is Hezbollah, that group, you know, the, the English translation of Hezbollah is army of Allah. And so they're there with him. And so we've got Assad and his Arab Republic, Syrian Arab Republic, 
with Russia, Iran, and the Hezbollah. In the northwest, up against the Turkish border, is what's called the Syrian opposition, also known as the Free Syria Army. In their corner and backing them and supplying them and providing troops to them and the whole deal is Erdogan, the president of Turkey and his nation. They're supplying weapons. They're supporting with troops on the ground. Then there is a third group, the Islamic State. They've been kind of reduced for the most part down to just a few small pockets uh, of, of control in the northeast. We know that they're kind of that group of Islamic radicals. And then lastly, there's a, there's a fourth group uh, called the Demo Democratic Federation of Northern Syria. And but behind Assad, they hold the second most amount of territory. They're hunkered down in the north, northeast. They're called, again, the, the DFNS. And they're teamed up with a combined joint task force that's working on an operation. You can look all this stuff up online and uh, the operation is called Inherent Resolve and the big players with them are America, the UK, France, Canada's in on there's about, probably about 50 nations, the UN's involved. And so we just, this country has got this civil war going on and this week in particular, Damascus dominated the headlines. Like I said, it started with a chemical attack. Western, Western governments claimed uh, because it's, we, I say claim because it's kind of hard to know the truth. Like it's just, in the reality, it's hard to know what the truth is in the story that Assad used chemical warfare against rebels in Damascus. And we're told that they used them against children. What they don't tell us is that for months and months and months, there has been shelling going on between both sides. And that the rebels that had the chemical attack against them were also supported by Turkey and they're withdrawing as they team up with Turkey and they're retreating to the northwest corner of Syria where they have control. And it's setting up a situation that I think points us to the prophecy of Jeremiah chapter 49. And so I'm going to get you to turn in your Bibles to Jeremiah 49. Jeremiah 49. You guys have fun? It's interesting stuff, I hope. I went to Isaiah 49. That's the problem right there. And so we'll pick it up. Jeremiah 49, verse 23. It says this. Probably in your Bible, the section is titled, Judgment on Damascus. Verse 23. Concerning Damascus, Hamath and Arpad are confounded, for they have heard bad news. They melt in fear. They are troubled like the sea that cannot be quiet. Damascus has become feeble. She turned to flee and panic seized her. Anguish and sorrows have taken hold of her as a woman in labor. How is the famous city not forsaken, the city of my joy? Therefore, her young men shall fall in her squares, and all her soldiers shall be destroyed in that day, declares the Lord of hosts. And I will kindle a fire in the wall of Damascus, and it shall devour the strongholds of Ben-Hadad. So Jeremiah gives us some information about Damascus that I think is, is, is for today. In verse 23, he gives us the names of, of two cities that are significant with regards to the future of Damascus. He says, these 
these two cities matter with regards to what will ultimately unfold with regards to Damascus. The first, he said, is called Hamath, Hamath. Today it's called Hamath. They've just dropped the T. You can look it up in online anywhere on a map of Syria and you'll find out that it's Syria's fifth largest city. That it's, it's north of Damascus towards the Turkish border and Hamath is still controlled by Assad, controlled by the Syrian Arab Republic along with the Russians and the Iranians. It's a, it's a little south of Aleppo in the north of Syria. Then the second city he mentions is called Arpad. Now, today Ar- Arpad is called Tel Rafat, but Tel Rafat is just 25 miles from the Turkish border. But the interesting thing about Tel Rafat is this, is that it, Turkey does not have control. The rebels in that area do not have control of Tel Rafat. The Democratic Federation of Northern Syria teamed up with the Joint Task Force, America, the UK, uh, France, and such. They have control of this city. And so it's interesting that these two cities that Jeremiah tells us about and he prophesies, one's controlled by Assad, one is controlled by these, uh, the Joint Coalition now look at what Jeremiah prophesies in verse 23 about these two cities. Hamath and Arpad are confounded for they, hurt, for they have heard bad news. They melt in fear. They are troubled like the sea that cannot be quiet. So again, here's these two cities controlled by two groups. One Assad, Russia, and Iran. The other one, the, the Joint Task Force. America, UK, and the France, and they are confounded because they have heard bad news. That's what Jeremiah says is going to happen. Now, the Hebrew word translated uh, confounded means that they are ashamed, that they have been put to shame by the, the news that they hear. Jeremiah says it's bad news. The King James translates it, it's this, it this way. It says it's evil tidings. Evil tidings. Remember the angels at Christ's birth? What did they say? Good tidings. Great news for all people. They, they declared, for unto us today a, a Savior has been born. He's Christ the Lord. Good tidings of great joy. Jeremiah says these cities are going to hear evil tidings. Evil tidings. They will melt in fear. They are troubled like the sea that cannot be quiet. You, you know what that kind of trouble is like, right? When you, when you think about your own life, you know, when your heart is like the tossing of the sea. Have you ever had your heart? In that spot where it's like, man, I just feel like I'm getting pounded, Lord. I don't know what's up and I don't know what's down and I'm being tossed. And there's anxiety and turmoil and no peace and confusion and upheaval as life just tosses you. And it's interesting that often in the scripture, the tossing of the sea is used as a picture of the nations and the world. In the Gospels, That is one of the great pictures of Jesus that we just often miss as we talk about him walking on the waters and we see him in the boat with his disciples and saying, peace be still. I I mean, we we have all sorts of great teaching on that, but, but often we just forget that as Jesus walked on that tossing, the Sea of Galilee as it tossed and his disciples were straining at the oar and, and he climbed in the boat and it And it was still that it's a picture of us that Jesus is in control of the nations. Did you know that? That's one of the pictures in that account. That he is walking on the tossing of the sea. That he's in control. 
that all he has to do is climb into your boat and say, be still. And the nations will bow the knee to him. The other time he slept in the bow of the boat whilst his disciples believed they would be capsized by the roaring of the sea. And they woke Jesus up and he stood up and he rebuked the winds and the waves and he said, peace be still. And the wind and the waves obeyed him. And the scripture tells us that his disciples said, who is this that even the wind and the waves obeyed him? And their terror turned from the wind and the waves to Jesus because they thought, who is this in the boat with us? And the reality is it's not just the wind and the waves that obey Jesus. Remember what Solomon said? The king's heart is a stream The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord and he turns it wherever he will. Let me suggest to you that the Lord is directing the nations. Do we not believe that? Do we not believe that he's bringing them all in for his purposes and to unfold his plans? There are end time scholars who are suggesting that according to Jeremiah chapter 49 verse 23 that that the people of northwest Syria and these two cities that are held by these two different groups will hear intelligent reports that the Turkish army is about to invade Syria and that the Turkish army's target will be Damascus and to get to Damascus, they will have to come through those two cities that are held by these two different coalitions And the people of northwestern Syria will be terrified and their hearts will faint and the hearts of the nations will faint. Assad, Russia, Iran, America, the UK, Canada and its little role in the whole thing. All the nations will toss like the sea. You think about Jesus walking on the sea there. They They will be being tossed like the sea at that realization that Turkey's goal is the destruction of Damascus. Look at verse 24. Damascus has become feeble. She turned to flee and panic seized her. Anguished and sorrow have taken hold of her as, a woman, as of a woman in labor. To me, when I read that, verse 24, that says Damascus has become feeble. Feeble to me seems to be a great description of Damascus right now. Wouldn't you say that? I mean, if you haven't seen before and after photos of Damascus, you should go look them up when you go home today. Just before Civil War, after Civil War. Much of the city has been reduced to to feebleness. Uh, Jeremiah says, she'll be seized with panic, the city will. Gripped with fear. Anguish will really gain a grasp and a stranglehold on the city. And and Jeremiah compares it to a woman beginning to enter labor as she prepares to give birth. That's what he says. Look at that again, the end of verse 24. Anguish and sorrows have taken hold of her as of a woman in labor. Now to me, that's interesting. Here's why that's interesting. Do you remember what what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 24? When he talked about nation rising against nation. And he said this. These are but the beginning of birth pains. Let me ask you this this morning. Is it possible 
that Jesus was referencing Jeremiah 49 as he taught that message to his disciple. Listen. Listen to me, church. The birth pains of tribulation are approaching. Our redemption is drawing nigh. Jesus is coming soon. He's coming very soon. The birth pains are beginning. They are beginning. Our redemption is drawing nigh. Look at what he says in verse 25. How is the famous city not forsaken, the city of my joy? I mean, truly, today you go, you go home today, you, you punch into Google before and after pictures of Damascus, you look it up, and then consider Jeremiah 49, 25. And what does the Lord ask? How is that city not forsaken? How is that famous city not forsaken? And the Lord is totally right. Because how could anyone make any sort of life in that city? When you begin to look at the pictures, it's just total destruction and rubble. It has been reduced to such rubble and destruction that it is really hard to believe that anyone is residing in that city. And it's interesting that the Lord calls it the city of my joy. The city of my joy. That God delights in that city. It gives him joy. I, I think it's because, you know, because God loves cities because people dwell in cities and God loves people. But I think about that too. I was just thinking about what the scripture tells us about Damascus. And you know, Damascus is that place where Paul got saved. Remember that? The road to Damascus. And he went into the city and scales fell from his eyes and he was prayed for, healed of blindness. He was filled with the Holy Spirit. You know, maybe Damascus is the city of the Lord's joy because it is a place in the plan of God that he will use to cause the scales to fall from the eyes of Israel. The city of his joy. Verse 26, Jeremiah says this, Therefore, her young men shall fall in her squares, and all her soldiers shall be destroyed in that day, declares the Lord of hosts. And I will kindle a fire in the wall of Damascus, and it shall devour the strongholds of Ben-Hadad. You know, even with the likelihood of Turkey bearing down on Damascus, which I think is going to happen, the young men, Jeremiah says, will refuse to abandon the city. Many people will try to escape, but the best young men will be killed in the streets and their fortress will be burned to the ground. And I've actually heard it suggested over the years that it's been suggested that Assad hides some of his you know, WMDs and chemical weapons within the ancient walls of Damascus. You know, I've, I've, I've heard that taught. And I've heard it taught that possibly that's what the kindling of fire within the walls of Damascus is suggesting. Jeremiah says all, all of her soldiers will be destroyed in that day. And when he makes that reference that day, I, I don't think that is a reference specific, like saying it's in one day, but in that time, in that period of time, and that, that trouble and death will be in that, in that time and in that period. Fire will devour, he says, the strongholds of Ben-Hadad. Ben-Hadad was, you can read about him in First and Second Kings. He was that king of Damascus that caused much trouble and death in the days of the kings of Israel. And so that's what Jeremiah tells us. So we got, we got Amos. We got Jeremiah. Now turn with me to Isaiah chapter 17 and we'll just touch down here really quick on Isaiah 17. Because Isaiah also tells us about Damascus. 
hear all those pages turning, it's great. And so Isaiah says this, he prophesies this in Isaiah 17, we'll just read verses 1 and 2. An oracle concerning Damascus, behold, Damascus will cease to be a city and will become a heap of ruins. The cities of Eror are deserted. They will be for flocks which will lie down and none will make them afraid. Look at what he says. Behold, Damascus will cease to be a city and will become a heap of ruins. Now that's amazing because I told you that Damascus is the oldest inhabited, continually inhabited city in the history of the world. It's more than 5,000 years of history. It's never been destroyed. It's never not been inhabited. What that is telling us is that the prophecy of Isaiah chapter 17 has never been fulfilled. Never been fulfilled, but it, it appears that we are on the verge of Isaiah 17 being fulfilled. And, Bible, so, and so Bible prophecy seems to point to the fact that that Turkey is going to come through that northwest border of Syria, Assad, Russia, and Iran, hanging out there in Hamas, America, the UK, France, the joint combined task force hanging out in Tel Rafat. They'll be confounded by the evil tidings. Along the way, Cities will be terrorized. The nations of the world will be tossed like the sea. Nations of the world will not be able to calm themselves down over what is going on. And and the people of Damascus will flee. But the young men will die in the streets. And the oldest city on earth will be destroyed. It's pretty amazing when we just think about the headlines and what's going on in our world. And you know, I guess, I just want to leave you with that to think about this morning, but I want to draw just a few applications for us as we consider these things. You know, the first would be this, that today people just, they they trust in all sorts of things rather than the God who made them. All sorts of false gods they've put their hope in. You know, in pleasure, in wealth, in military might, you know, whatever, in whatever achievement, science, development, whatever it is, even religious experience. And what God is calling us to do, folks, is to trust in him. And how much does God have to say to, to, to convict people to bring forth the reality that his wrath is coming? The time is short. And so the reality is that I just have to ask you this question this morning. Do you know Jesus? Do you know Jesus because he is the one who sits enthroned upon the circle of the earth upon who who walks on the seas and says peace be still the nations serve him and his purposes. And as much as we look out on the world and say I don't understand what's going on. I don't know who to trust. I don't know which nation to believe. I don't know what news agency to believe. The only thing that matters is this. Do you know and trust Jesus Christ? Do you know Jesus You know, is your life being tossed like the waves of the sea? Is your life being tossed like the waves of the sea? Then like the disciples, you need to invite Jesus into the boat. I think that's a great picture to me, that boat floating on that Sea of Galilee while Jesus 
was walking on that water. To, to me, that is a great picture of the life that does not have Jesus in it. Being pounded, afraid, fearful, and then he gets in the boat and things change. That other story of Jesus where he is sleeping in the bow of the boat, to me, that's a great picture of the life that has Jesus in it. Still tossed, still sometimes pounded by life, but in a moment, Jesus can stand and say, peace be still. You know, when we consider just Bible prophecy, the truth is, is that we all know the end of the story. We all know who wins at the end of the story. The word of God tells us Jesus wins. And so don't let yourself be confounded by the headlines. Jesus is seated on the throne and the nations of, its, of this earth and its rulers will answer to him and they will serve his purposes. The nations serve the purposes of God. The kings of this earth serve the purposes of God. And so recognize that the Lord is using this whole situation. He is drawing in all the major players. They're all in place for the fulfillment of Ezekiel 38 and 39 for the fulfillment of these prophecies that we read this morning. And when we just consider these things, the one thing that matters is this, that we recognize that Jesus is coming soon. And is he in your boat? Is he in your life? Is your life surrendered to him? You know, the scripture tells us, history tells us that 2,000 years ago, he descended, he came down to us, took on the form of human nature, gave his life on a cross for the sin of mankind to bring mankind into relationship with him. He died on that cross, he was buried, and he won victory over death, was raised to life. And he says this, just the promise of his word is this, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. And the scripture just invites us to believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead.